Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 24. By the time you hear this, I'll be on a plane flying to Los Angeles to do interviews with Johnny Harvey for his Ghost Empire documentary about Harvey Comics. I will let you know in a future podcast what happened and when this exciting documentary is due to come out. Our guest today has been the curator for many, many years at the Cartoon Art Museum in San Francisco, and is also the author of books about Looney Tunes, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Peanuts, 80s Cartoons, and Harley Quinn, among others. Here he is, Andrew Farrago. So, hey Andrew, how are you doing today? Uh, doing great. How about yourself? Pretty good. Uh, just wanted to know how, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with the Cartoon Art Museum. Okay, yeah, a lifelong fan of cartoons, comics, and the animation. And when I moved out to San Francisco in 2000, uh, I was looking for, uh, you know, some something fun to do with my weekends. <laughs> And, um, yeah, I was looking, this is, you know, there were probably about all of about three websites at the time, uh, but one of them was Craigslist, so I looked up local volunteer opportunities there and uh, found a listing for the Cartoon Art Museum. Uh, that was summer of 2000, and, um, yeah, I've been, been here ever since. Hmm. Now you're you're considered. What's your official title now? The curator, or do you have another title than that? Uh, I'm the I'm the curator. So I started out as a volunteer uh, when I was hired on staff. It was as the uh, the gallery manager, uh, and then uh, when our own curator at the time uh, moved on to. Um, uh, position at Ohio State University. Uh, it was, uh, you know, easy easy enough for me to just move across the hall and take her office. So, um, <laughs> that's been uh, that's been almost um, closing in on fifteen years. I'd wow. say. Wow. As as the uh, as a head chief only <laughs> curator at the uh, museum. Now you said you started in two thousand as volunteer. How many years had the museum been in existence prior to that? Okay, uh, the museum started in 1984, Okay. Uh, so a man named Malcolm White, uh, who is a publisher and writer and collector and appreciator of the arts, um, he was inspired in part by Mort Walker's International Museum of Cartoon Art, uh, which is on the East Coast. And Malcolm and some of his friends said, "Well, we need we need one right here in California, especially San Francisco, which um, many historians will tell you is the birthplace of the comic strip, and it's it's where underground comics took off. You actually have the roots of um, television animation right here with cartoons like Crusader Rabbit." So. You know, he said, "Why, why not San Francisco?" That, wow. was, uh, that was almost 35 years ago, <laughs> and uh, yeah, still, still, um, still here. Now, now you, the location's moved a few times. I honestly don't know where it is right at the moment, so you might want to promote that. But how many locations has it been over the years? Uh, it's funny. We have, um, 
you know, it's 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 um it's one of those oxymorons like uh, new new permanent location. <laughs> um, but the museum for most of its existence was in the the south of market neighborhood uh in San Francisco. Um so until until just a couple years ago we were on um Mission Street uh in the uh, again south south of Market, uh Yerba Buena Arts District. And you know, every every time we've moved, um and I'll, I'll mention that our first permanent location was founded in nineteen eighty seven and that was thanks to an endowment endowment from uh Charles Schultz and his wife Jeannie. Oh wow. <laughs> uh so that was that was the first permanent location back in nineteen eighty seven. And then, you know, uh, over the years combination of, you know, the ever changing real estate market, um has has made us has had us move uh a number of times. So sometimes it's uh an opportunity to get a bigger and better space. Sometimes it's, um, you know, sometimes it's required because the rents have gone up. Hmm. Uh, so we've, we've moved a number of times. Most recently, though, we've moved, uh, and we just, we passed our one-year anniversary pretty recently, uh, but we are at 781 Beach Street uh, in San Francisco, about a half block away from Ghirardelli Square. So it's a really... Uh, you know, big big change for us. It's a nice, very scenic location. Um, you know, not not far away, not far at all from um, Fisherman's Wharf. We're actually we're actually considered part of the Fisherman's Wharf uh, community district. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a it's a really exciting new neighborhood for us. So how many square feet is it now, or is it, or if you don't know that off the top of your head, uh, is it the largest? Museum space that you've had. Uh, I'll say, yeah, I'll say that it's it's very comparable to our previous location. So if you visited us from uh, 2001 to 2015, um, you know we have a we have a we, yeah we have a comparable space here okay. at 781 Beach Street, and and people can go to. Uh, our website, if you Google Cartoon Art Museum or look up cartoonart.org, and we do all the all the major social media networks too. Very cool. To, uh, keep people up to date on who who we are and what we're doing. <laughs> so, as as curator, I mean, I know what a curator does, but I mean, tell us what you do <laughs> as a curator. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's. Um, you know, it's since we are a, since we are a small museum and a small staff, we um, you know we all do a little bit of everything. So I, um, you know, I don't know if I could ever go to work for a larger museum because I would just have such a different responsibility set. Um, <laughs> probably probably a, a much diminished responsibility set at another museum. Mm. Because uh, what I do is I work with um, our other staff members and our board of directors um, to plan out um, full full roster of exhibitions. We also uh, we work with other institutions, either borrowing and lending. Uh, 
with other institutions. Um, when I put together an exhibition that involves a combination of things. So often I will work with artists directly if they are still um, if they're still with us and if they still have a, a substantial body of their own artwork. Um, but I also work with collectors and institutions. So if someone approaches me with an idea, um, you know, someone says, I want to do a show about cartoon dogs, then <laughs> I'll discuss it with them. Are you a, are you a cartoonist? Have you done a strip that's about cartoon dogs? Are you a collector? Do you have this? Uh, give access to the artists and the material that you would want to put in this exhibition. Uh, so I have to, I, you know, I have to ask all the practical questions to make sure um, this is this is something that we can we can pull together uh, in a reasonable time frame and do well. Uh, and I also have to do a lot of um, research. I write the exhibition text. I will talk to. Um, talk to artists and collectors and historians and come up with uh, programming that we can do over the course of the exhibition. Uh, so we have things that, um, you know, we have public presentations, we have to come up with the educational component of it so that we know, um, you know, how to, how to engage with teachers and school groups that will visit. Oh during the course of an exhibition uh, and you know and all, all of us on staff have uh, about a million little jobs that um, would each would each be handled by entire departments at a larger museum hmm. very cool well apart from the Harvey art show that we worked on <laughs> uh, what was yeah. your what was your favorite uh <laughs> What was your favorite exhibition you've had over the years that you were in charge of? Oh, we've done, I've, um, you know, I've, I've worked on well over 100 exhibitions at this point, and there are, you know, so many so many fun ones that um, we've done. I, I did a Superman 75th anniversary show that, um, that was really special to me because one of the first, uh, I'd say actually the first uh, time I saw comics in any kind of museum setting was Superman's 50th anniversary, hmm. which um, where was that? Uh, my my yeah my uh, my class field trip in uh, sixth grade coincided with Superman's 50th anniversary, and the Smithsonian oh. uh, in Washington D.C. had a Superman 50th anniversary exhibition, and. You know that that obviously planted a seed because 25 years later I got to, to uh, assemble a Superman 75th anniversary exhibition. Uh, you know, and over the years I've I've worked on um, you know Peanuts exhibitions and Calvin and Hobbes and uh, Mad Magazine, and you you assisted with that one. Mm-hmm. Um, that was that was a lot of fun. That was one of the um, I don't know if it was the first. It may have been the first exhibition of Matt that um, spanned from the comic book era all the way to the, um, you know, then very right up to the minute um, latest material from the magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was 
was incredible. Um, another another personal favorite would have to be the uh, the Mary Blair exhibition. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, which she was a she was a brilliant concept artist for Disney, uh, talented children's book illustrator. Uh, created a lot of very iconic 1950s advertising art and you know I would I wouldn't say she was forgotten when we did our exhibition but she was she was still in the underappreciated category yeah yeah <laughs> and the exhibition that we did um, you know it, it, it spun out of um, discussions we'd had with other people uh, historians and, and fans of her work and you know we, we drew inspiration from uh, Disney historian um, John Canemaker he wrote a really great book about Mary and her work uh, so my wife and I um, helped pull together this exhibition for the Cartoon Art Museum we worked with Mary's um, son and we worked with um, animators and collectors who had some of the best examples of her artwork and that's that's a show that really took on a life of its own because we ended up um, we gave guided tours of that exhibition to um, Walt Disney's daughter um, oh. Diane who's who's since passed away right. uh, but also to um, a lot of the top people from Pixar who um, told their friends at Studio Ghibli to check this exhibition out. So we actually um, gave a tour to this delegation from Studio Ghibli, and they decided to do a greatly expanded version of it at uh, the um, Contemporary Art Museum in Tokyo uh, a couple of years later. Um uh, so all all this 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 one little idea ended up um, getting me a couple of trips to Japan where we worked on this oh, wow. <laughs> um, phenomenal uh, international exhibition of her work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I don't I don't always expect that to happen when I when I sit down and um, hash things out with a collector or an artist. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, you just you just never know <laughs> where these things are going to lead. Do you think that was the most lucrative one or the most successful one, or were there others? Uh, let's see. As far as as far as blockbuster attendance, uh, the Calvin and Hobbes exhibition that we did <laughs> uh, right right when we moved into our previous space um, again back in back in two thousand one uh, that was um, you know I think that brought in the most people. Hmm. Uh, and one of our one of our all time busiest months was we had a we had a very limited run um, of an exhibition from featuring the movie Coraline. Oh yeah. Uh, so that was that was a case of Leica Studios calling up, uh, letting us know, you know, we've got these great we've got this great artwork, we've got concept artwork, we have. Um, Puppets and models, and all these this behind the behind the scenes look at stop motion animation uh, sets, all this cool stuff, and we don't have any place to put it. <laughs> um, so we we jumped at that, and because we had um, because I had a few things that were locked into the calendar um, at that time, 
only do a one month limited engagement. Uh-huh. And uh, between Leica putting the word out and um, probably probably a few well placed um, notes from Neil Gaiman on social media, uh-huh. uh, we had a we had a really busy month uh, with that exhibition. Wow. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we've had some we've had some. Yeah, we've had a few commercial hits as well as the uh, <laughs> critical favorites. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you know, we met, you mentioned the Mary Blair one. Did the same exhibition go to Japan, or was it just a different one, or how did that work? Well, that was that was interesting. So the the space that we had available for the exhibition um, when we hosted it was. Um, you know, we were able to put together, you know, a nice, probably 60-piece retrospective of her work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's concept art and photographs and um, animation paintings and um, little uh, artwork from little golden books. Uh, so a lot, and, and some of her personal paintings. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason I ask that, that is, is uh, like... I guess the real question is uh, how often do these travel? I know like the Harvey one we did traveled to other museums, so uh, it sounded like the Mary Blair one did too. I don't know, did the Coraline one do it if you had for a month, or did that just appear there and that was it? (laughs) Yeah, most of uh, you know, the majority of our shows end up being um, these these one-off shows, so I, Mm -hmm. I put it together um we have it. We have it on display for a limited time, and then the artwork goes back to its its point of origin. If it's if it's a, if it's a show that we borrowed uh, the materials from other people, mm-hmm. and yeah, if it's if that's the case, then and, you know, often it means that a collector has, um, you know, had had his artwork out on the road for uh, six months or more. So they're they're usually they're usually happy to get it back after it's been traveling for so long, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know it, it depends. If we 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 generally let it be known when we put together an exhibition, yes, we can we can work with you and your institution, and we can find a way to uh, to bring this to your venue if you're interested in it. Um, sometimes sometimes I'll get taps to assist with the show. And that's that's kind of what happened with uh, Mary Blair. If they don't take the show from us directly, uh, but they know I've worked on it, um, I may get taps to work on a, a version of it for their venue. Uh, so the 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 Mary Blair show, for example. Um, so there's a the Contemporary Museum in Tokyo had an exhibition of Disney art. Um, you know, during I think during Walt Disney's lifetime, during the, in the in the 1960s, mm-hmm. and it's an interesting story. Some of this artwork uh, at the end of the exhibition, for whatever reason, it got put away, and everybody forgot about it. Nobody nobody remembered that this artwork had been loaned out. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it makes it makes me feel better about. If I'm if I'm a week behind on my paperwork or something, knowing that this artwork disappeared for 50 years, <laughs> um, so they, they they found.
found this they found this artwork um you know the uh the museum uh contacted disney to let them know and disney said you know as a good as a goodwill gesture why don't you keep it um so they uh in japan they put it on display uh so they did a disney exhibition and it was very popular and then they said we noticed that the most popular and obviously that the artist that resonated with the audiences the most uh was mary blair so her artwork was um you know very appealing to japanese audiences and that that planted the seed for them to do a mary blair solo exhibition uh and since they were aware of our work here in the US they contacted us asked for our help in um contacting artists and pulling artwork together uh helping them assemble um by far the largest Mary Blair exhibition uh, ever assembled so they um they borrowed everything from the Blair family that was available they borrowed uh, as much as they could from the um from the Disney archive the official Walt Disney archives um they borrowed from private collectors so, so several of whom I um put them in contact with uh and they so they they took our little 60 piece show and they spun it off into a um and I may it may have been a 500 piece show wow. um, <laughs> all together so they they we, we you know we took we took one really large gallery room um at the museum and they took um you know about two floors of their um giant <laughs> uh <laughs> contemporary art museum so they they you know they were able to do um you know, to, to, and and they also had, uh, whereas whereas our staff was me and my wife, they had, um, you know, a full crew working year round leading up to the show, putting it together. Hmm. Um, and interestingly, they they told us at the end of that show um, that the they they wrote down a big they wrote down a very high number on a piece of paper, and they explained to us that was. Uh, the attendance for the Disney, uh, you know, the, the Walt Disney Studios show that they'd done three years earlier. And then they mentioned when the Mary Blair show opened, it opened quietly. They were nervous about it because they were working with uh, a museum and the Studio Ghibli and the uh, NHK, which is a major television studio. Mm-hmm. And they said it, it opened very slowly that the first couple months they were worried that they were going to uh, maybe even lose money on this exhibition hmm. uh, but then they wrote down this this number that was much bigger than the uh, Walt Disney number <laughs> <laughs> and, they, and they said this this was what the attendance was for the Mary Blair show uh, they said positive word of mouth hmm. um, allowed the show to really catch on uh, they extended the show because it was so popular and because they had wall-to-wall people wow. uh, checking it out every day. And they said the vast majority of the audience um, was women. So this was this was all really, um, yeah, very very interesting to me. And it was it was cool <laughs> that um, you know I don't think they they didn't even use the name Disney in advertising. 
the name Mary Blair and a picture. That's that's all that's all that's out there. So there's no there's no picture of Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck to bring you in. Um, and yeah, that was that was such a such a fun. Uh, exciting experience. Well, yeah, she did have a very appealing art style. I know she did some children's books, and of course, if anybody's seen Small World at Disneyland or Disney World or wherever, yeah, <laughs> that's her stuff. <laughs> right. I should. I should. I should. I should have mentioned. Yeah, I should have mentioned that right off. That's that's where you know her work is if you've ever been. Um, if you've ever written It's a Small World, if you've seen um, the children's book I Can Fly. Um, yeah, but the whole the whole 1950s, you know, happy smiling kid aesthetic and and you know bright colorful shapes, all, all that can be a lot of that, especially in modern animation, can be traced to her work. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you're saying that there is some rare pieces in that. Uh, what show or what piece over the years? has been like either the rarest or like the biggest coup I guess to get to display in the Cartoon and Art Museum that yeah that's a, that's a very good question um, yeah every every once in a while and I, I don't know that I've borrowed too many of them but every once in a while I'll see a uh, you know I'll see a piece of art that is just I've seen so many times that it's it's almost it's it's almost hard to it's almost impossible to comprehend it as being a real piece of art. Um, and it's it'll be a comic strip that I've seen um, a thousand times, or a comic book cover. Uh, and I think actually that you know the very first. Um, Exhibition I saw when I visited the Cartoon Art Museum as a uh, again in my volunteer days. It was for a Peanuts 50th anniversary exhibition, mm-hmm. um, and that would have been not long after Charles Schultz had passed away. And there's a great early 50s Peanuts Sunday strip where Charlie Brown uh, visits his local newsstand and is impressed by. Uh, all the amazing comic books that are on the rack. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know what a what a you know what a beautiful gory layout. Right. And all the comics have names like Mame and Stab and um, Gouge and Kill and, and things like that. So um, you know Schultz, Schultz, I don't think had a very high opinion of uh, comic book art uh, necessarily. Um, <laughs> And cer- certainly, certainly in the 1950s, that impression of comics as being these, um, you know, these horrible, violent magazines, um, you know, that that impression was not, um, you know, was it wasn't without merit. <laughs> um, but that was that was some of my earliest exposure to um, original cartoon art, and that was that was a great way to kick it off. And um, yeah, again, seeing seeing these these pieces that I've grown up with in person. Yeah, um, that particular that particular again, strip. That's sorry, uh, that particular strip was that in a private collector's hands, or was that from the Schultz Museum or Jeannie Schultz? Uh, 
that was that was um, in the hands of a private collector. Ah, okay. So a lot of um, yeah, our friends at the the Charles Schultz um, Museum and Research Center in Santa Rosa uh, have the have the world's largest repository of Peanuts original artwork, and um, yeah, so they've they've got a great collection. Schultz was very generous. Um, uh, as far as giving strips to friends and fans and and trading with other artists, uh, so a lot of it a lot of it did leave his possession over the years, and then a lot of that, um, you know, I'd say in the '80s and '90s before people, um, you know, before the before the original art market really uh, took off to the, the heights that it's reached today. Um, you know, it was possible to get, still get a good deal on original um, oh. Peanuts artwork. Yeah. Uh, so now, you know, that, that, that ship has long since sailed, but <laughs> um, some of the, some of the, some major collectors who are um, now very prominent art dealers, a lot, of, a lot of them were ahead of the curve and were buying um, Peanuts original art when it was uh, still, yeah, still relatively affordable. Yep, yep. <laughs> now, as, as I notice you uh, do certain shows, like you've done the Silicon Valley show, you do San Diego Comic Con, or I guess Comic Con International. Uh, do you put on art shows there for a cartoon art museum, or is it just an excuse to be on panels and raise money for the museum? <laughs> or both? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, it's... <laughs> You know, it's a, it's a combination of things. So some some shows, um, some conventions, they do have that as um, you know part of part of the reason that we we will be there is they they may have a gallery space and um, you know they they may ask us to put together an exhibition. Uh, I've been to a few international festivals where. Um, it's, it's basically singing for your supper, um, where they they have they have a particular theme that they're exploring, and so they'll they'll ask, you know, hey, can you put together an exhibition on? Um, so I did a I did a Batman show once for a Greek festival, uh, and I got to um, let's see, I, I, man- I managed to I got to go to. Portugal uh, by putting together a Superman exhibition for them, and you know I've actually I've actually worked with this um, great Greek festival called Comic Them, uh, which is it's you know I, I love it. You can fit the entire Greek comic book industry into you know a small room. You could get them all uh, you could get them all at McDonald's together. Mm. Uh, if you wanted, and um, you know, so that's. But you know, they're very tight knit. It's a very fun group, uh, and I'm actually working on a, a small Archie exhibition for them right now. Hmm. Um, I probably I probably won't get to make the trip, but um, you know, we we enjoy working with them, and um, it's easier for me to put together artwork uh, here in the U.S. and send it to them than for them to contact all these um, separate collectors that they haven't worked with before. 
so I, I do some work like that. But a lot of a lot of what I do at conventions uh, ends up being uh, a combination of programming, which is um, organizing and moderating panel discussions about cartoon art and comics history, uh, and also. You know, we frequently end up staffing uh, convention tables there, so we get a we get a chance to sell some merchandise. But um, even even more importantly than that is a chance to um, talk to comic fans and let them know who we are, what we do, um, encourage them to visit next time that uh, they're in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. So just uh, yeah, public public outreach and really really spreading the word so that everybody knows who we are and what we do. Do you do shows elsewhere? I mentioned the two that I know about, but uh, do you ever do any like an East Coast or elsewhere in the country or even the world? As far as so a lot of, yeah a lot of those it depends on um, you know the. Our, our individual travel plans. So the um, uh, me and my um, coworkers, if we are, um, you know, I haven't I haven't done New, I haven't tabled at New York Comic Con, um, but I my my only my only visit there actually was about ten years ago, and that was to give a. The Cartoon Art Museum's Lifetime Achievement Award to Mort Walker, because oh. um, we. Uh, so this is yeah, this is this is interesting. Our, our Lifetime Achievement Award is called the Sparky Award, <laughs> and it's it's named after Charles Schultz. That was his childhood, and actually through his whole life, that was his nickname, uh, Sparky. And this is this is based on the horse. Spark plug from the uh, Barney Google comic strip. Uh-huh. Uh, so our Lifetime Achievement Award is a um, it's a Snoopy statue. Snoopy is holding an ink pen, um, standing by an inkwell. It's called the Sparky Award, and we give it out for Lifetime Achievement in comics. And uh, Jeannie Schultz asked, and when she asks, uh, you listen. <laughs> uh, but she, she asked if we would consider giving one to Mort Walker, uh, for his years of, um, you know, his years in the comic strip business and serving as a, uh, you know, mentor to young cartoonists, um, you know, running a successful studio, all the work he'd done with the military and his 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 own, um, you know, charitable efforts over time. Uh, so we we said, yeah, absolutely, we would love to do that and. She suggested, or someone, I think maybe King Feature Syndicate suggested, um, you know, why don't why don't we present this to him in a in a public venue? He's going to be doing an appearance at the New York Comic Con. We'll have a we'll we'll be guaranteed a full house. Um, I said, sure, let's let's do that. So I flew. Um, yeah. I, this is this is the only I, I spent one afternoon at the New York Comic Con, so I, I flew in <laughs> uh, with um, you know a thirty pound um, Snoopy statuette in my uh, in my carry in my carry on bag. Um, I, I you know I, I I don't know ten 
years ago you could do it. I don't even know if today they would let me do it. <laughs> um, but um, it, was, it, was, it was funny. Like it was, it was all wrapped up and and um, went through the X-ray scanner, and they said, "Here's your Snoopy statue," mm. uh, which was um, yeah, modern modern technology. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I had the opportunity to present this award to Mort Walker. Um, you know, thanked him. had a had a had a really incredible uh, career retrospective panel discussion with him, uh, and then I was back on the plane back to San Francisco. But I would I'd love to go spend more time at that show. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for practical reasons, mostly what we do are um, California conventions, but mm-hmm. uh, occasionally, occasionally we've done. Um, you know, if we know that I'll be there, or one of my coworkers will be there. Uh, we've done shows in Portland and Seattle, mm-hmm. um, up and down the West Coast. But uh, you know, if if someone if someone will pay my way, if they will, if they'll <laughs> get me out there to do, um, you know, a full slate of programming, then you know, I will I will be happy to do it. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, apart from the. Charles Schultz Museum in Santa Rosa is the Cartoon Art Museum really the last of its kind nowadays? Because, like, I think Mort Walker's museum is closed, and I think the Toonzeum is closed, and I think the Mocha is closed, and I think <laughs> Jeppy's museum is closed. Are there any other cartoon art museums in the country? <laughs> there, there have been there have been some that have come and gone, um, but yeah, let, let me do the. The rapid fire history. The um, <laughs> uh, I, met, I mentioned Moore Walker and his museum, and how that was a actually an inspiration to Malcolm White and his friends who founded the Cartoon Art Museum. And you know, it's a, it's the same it's the same story over and over again about um, you know it is, it is an underappreciated art form. It's it's difficult. Largest 
collection of cartoon art and newspaper clippings and books and, and everything else. Uh, so they're now called the Billy Ireland Cartoon Library and Museum. Uh, so that's that's around. So we've got we've got them. The Toonsium in Pittsburgh again also ran into funding issues, <laughs> um, as did Mocha in New York. Um, you know, we we and uh, Mocha and the Cartoon Art Museum have have similar issues of being, uh, you know, trying to make a go of it and and to the places with the most expensive real estate on earth, <laughs> uh, which is, which is, which, you know, I, I could tell you it's, it's, you know, it's a constant battle, right. um, keeping up with that. And, um, Mocha folded, uh, into, uh, they, they basically dissolved and their collection was absorbed by the, uh, society of illustrators in New York. Mm. Um, you know, so a lot of you know um, things come and go. Things things uh, change and evolve, and um, you know. But the um, one of the exciting things for me is it, it feels like not a week goes by that I don't hear about uh, an exhibition of cartoon art or comic art or um, the animation artwork. Um, that's, that's being planned somewhere. So I just saw Britain has a major manga exhibition coming up, and the um, you know the Academy of Motion Pictures, um, or the, yeah, the Motion Picture um, Academy (MPAA) um, they're launching a museum with a Studio Ghibli exhibition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's. Yeah, I think I think uh, appreciation for the um, you know cartoons and comics as an art form has has grown uh, exponentially even during the um, you know the twenty years or so that I've been involved mm-hmm. um, with this with this field, and it's yeah it's it's exciting. You know, they're going to be they're always going to be struggles with. Um, individual museums and galleries and institutions, but um, you know, I think I think love and appreciation for cartoons as an art form has has just um, been onward and upward this whole time. Mm-hmm. What what uh, shows do we have to look forward to in 2019 then at Cartoon Art Museum? featuring an artist uh, named Joe Mora, uh, J-O-M-O-R-A, mm-hmm. and he is, uh, he was called the Renaissance Man of the West, a uh, very talented artist, born in Uruguay, came to the U.S. with his family when he was a child in the 1800s, and, um, you know, he's, he did a lot of incredible Western-themed art. Uh, so he drew cartoon maps of California. He drew children's books. He drew comic strips. Um, talented painter, sculptor. Um, 
you know, he's, he's still got, you can see a lot of his statues all throughout um, the Bay Area as well as, um, you know, Monterey, that, that area of California. And yeah, an incredibly talented artist. We're, we're thrilled to be bringing his work back to the public. Uh, a lot of the work that we're showing, even though it was done, um, you know, prior, prior to his death in 1946, uh, a lot of what we're showing right now is, is on public display for the first time ever. Wow. <laughs> um, you know, so I like, I like doing stuff like that. We, ra we recently wrapped up uh, an exhibition featuring uh, Jim Starlin, who's best known for, um, you know, cosmic... Marvel comic books, um, a lot of a lot of the stuff that's informed the recent Avengers movies uh, came from his work, and uh, you know, so it's 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 fun that we get to go back and forth from, um, you know, here's here's something that um, the man on the street's gonna know and is is featuring famous characters and properties and artists. And then we get a chance to shine a spotlight on someone who, um, you know, either, um, you know, never got their due or um, has, has been out of the spotlight for some time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the Joe Mora exhibition, um, we've got a an ongoing exhibition uh, featuring highlights from our animation permanent collection. Mm. Uh, so that's that's again a lot a lot of work that's been in our vault um, for years, maybe even um, that maybe has never been on public display. And uh, yeah, I love I love the opportunity to share that with the public. <laughs> and um, I know you've uh, written a number of books. We can talk about a couple of them at least. But uh, did you get your book? Uh, contracts, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, by being the curator of the Cartoon Art Museum, or did you just approach publishers independently? Well, um, yeah, it's, I will say that I'm, I'm one of the, um, yeah, there aren't, there aren't a lot of people who have a, um, you know, have have the word cartoon in their job title mm -hmm. <laughs> officially. Uh, so that does, you know, that that does help me to stand out when you are, um, you know, looking looking over a group of applicants for a for a position. Mm -hmm. um, so my yeah my um, writing work, I would say I I trace this back mostly to. Uh, one of the one of the museum's um, first board members. He may have actually even been a founding board member. Um, he put me in touch with a with a publisher uh, because they were working on um, this is a long time ago now. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, fan, uh, the San Rafael-based publisher, Insight Editions, does um, really nice coffee table um, books. They do a lot of art 
driven books, artifact driven books. And they were working on a book called The Hanna Barbera Treasury, uh, which was written by our friend Jerry Beck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were looking for some additional art and artifacts to help uh, round out that book. So this uh, this board member, this, this um, again, uh, early Cartoon Art Museum board member, uh, put them in touch with me and said, hey, you got to talk to Andrew at the Cartoon Art Museum because he can he can probably um, and that's that's one of the things we do at the museum is if a publisher um, puts in a request and we're we're able to accommodate that um, you know we're not the we're the we're the custodians of this artwork we're not the owners of it we're not the um, uh, we're not the copyright holders so if we if we can help with a historical. Um, project where you know we're happy to do that uh so i met with the met with one of the editors and helped them uh find some art for this hanna-barbera book and um you know i don't know how much later it was but um uh jerry beck was working on um a book about the hundred greatest looney tunes right (laughs) and he needed people to write um, he was looking for 50 animation authorities to write two essays a piece on uh, these hundred great Looney Tunes cartoons. Uh, so I got I got tapped for that, and um, the editor on that book liked my work enough that he called me up. Um, you know, a year or so later, uh, to ask me to write a book called The Looney Tunes Treasury. Um, which is now about ten years ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh, probably more. Probably more than more than ten years ago that I started right started the project. Um, but he said basically they had the they had the license to do a Looney Tunes book, and they wanted um, to do a history book. But because uh, again I keep mentioning Jerry Beck because so, because so many people had written um, authoritative in-depth history books about the Looney Tunes. Uh, they wanted a different approach to it. So this was this was a creative writing project as well. They needed, um, they wanted to look at the Looney Tunes. Uh, they wanted to tell the, the stories, the histories of these characters, but as, as told by the characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had, to, I had to write Bugs Bunny's history uh, in Bugs Bunny's voice as told by right. Bugs Bunny. <laughs> Um, so I did. I did that for the most popular characters. I managed to work in some Easter eggs and looks and winks at some of the uh, lesser-known characters. Um, yeah, and it was. Um, yeah, that was a very fun book, and that um, got my foot in the door. Um, although it took it took a few years. It was probably. Um, it was, it was actually it was actually another few years before I got a call from the, the same publisher. Um, you know, I, for the most part, I don't actively look out look for writing projects. Mm-hmm. I just I just kind of take them on as they as they come my way, <laughs> uh, and that, that keeps me that keeps me busy enough. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a few years later, the same publisher asked if I would be interested in writing about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and I said sure. Mm-hmm. 
and um, so I wrote, wrote a history book on that and you know a few years later I worked on um, this is this is kind of an outgrowth of the, the Ninja Turtles book but the same uh, my editor for that project said do you want to write about, about um, 1980s cartoons so do a, do a chapter on the Ninja Turtles 80s cartoon but um, you know do cover you know 15 other of your favorite cartoons from that decade mm-hmm. um, so I said absolutely that sounds great um, <laughs> and while I was working on that because that was such a um, that was such a long project and it took um, uh, it took longer than we realized to um, sort out sort out all the rights and permissions <laughs> involved. So while I was waiting for that one to come out, um, they said, "Well, why don't you work on a Harley Quinn 25th anniversary book?" While we're waiting on that, um, so I said, "Sure." And while I was working on that, uh, a different another publisher. Uh, contacted me and said, would you like to write a Peanuts history book? Um, so I said, sure. And actually, you know, those three books all came out within uh, a month of each other. Yeah, I remember that. They were all kind of at the same time. It's like, wow, <laughs> how'd that happen? Because <laughs> I thought you were just working so on from, the 80s cartoons one, and I, I helped you a little bit on that one. And then the other two came yeah. out. It's like, where did you have time to do all this? <laughs> but I know how that I, is I, as an author myself, so yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I still don't know. So between, um, yeah, from Halloween to Thanksgiving, um, I had three books come out last year. <laughs> and... Um, you know, and it's it's um, you know it's 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 if you look at um, you know if you look at Hollywood actors will seemingly not be working at all, and then all of a sudden you'll say, hey, Jude Law's Jude Law's in five movies this summer. How did right. you, how did you do that? And it's you know you you do a little bit here, a little bit there. Something hits a delay, the studio or the publisher. Yeah, and in, in this case, in this case, it's the publisher saying, "Well, we want this to be ready for this holiday season, and if we're going to miss this mark, we're going to put it back, push it back to here, and we have to shuffle this, and we have to um, do that." And there's some bookkeeping involved, and contract negotiations, and when you're doing books with licensed properties, that's a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it looked like. Um, you know, if these if these had been spaced out, I probably would have had a book every other year, and it would not have looked like any right. big deal. Right. Um, and right right now, I'm um, wrapping up work on a Voltron book, uh, and while I'm working on that, um, you know, that's that's had a nice leisurely um, publishing schedule, and right now I'm starting on another book and these these two will probably end up coming out the same day or the same week or something just to <laughs> just 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 to do that all over again it's probably going to look like um you know why do you keep taking two years off and then writing these books both yeah not realizing that yeah they take about two years a piece to do yeah <laughs> and some yeah some some come together quickly peanuts um Peanuts I wrote very quickly. Um, you know, I like, to, I like to point out that I had already done 40-something years of research before <laughs> writing that book. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, 
I interview as many people as I can. Um, so I track down uh, animators and voice actors and artists and scriptwriters and producers, um, you know, toy manufacturers, this whole range of people um, to do as much research as possible on that um, firsthand. Uh, but when I'm doing something like uh, a book on Looney Tunes, um, you know, and, and that's especially true now, but 10 years ago, um, very few of the people who had firsthand experience on the cartoons were still with us. Right. And uh, again, with the, the approach the publisher wanted to take, um, you know, I did not need to do that legwork. And also, as, as I said, as I said, people, um, you know, like Jerry Beck and Leonard Malton and um, John Canemaker, like all these, all these, um, Michael Barrier, all, all these great writers had done their research when these people were still around and available. Um, so yeah, project, project by project, each each book is a, a different set of challenges, and that's. Um, that matches up pretty neatly with my, my work at the museum where um, you know, I may be doing a, a Western artist from the um, early 1900s one week and it might be a uh, uh, CGI animation studio the next. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I just wanted, to, as an aside on that Peanuts book, on a recent podcast I interviewed Nat Gertler and he mentioned you, so I'll tell you what happened. Uh, he said... You had a panel discussion, I believe you said Sa- San Diego, um, about uh-huh. the, about Peanuts, and I think the question was posed, uh, what's your favorite obscure Peanuts character or something to, to that effect, and he mentioned a character that I'm not sure if you have in the book or not, uh, named Dolores. <laughs> Does that ring a bell? And it was some obscure... Uh, Peanuts character that only appeared in like a film strip series. It wasn't even in the actual strip. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, that was actually yeah. Um, so my yeah my book actually we um, you know we we made the decision at the outset this is going to be one hundred percent just the uh, the comic strip characters. Okay, so there's no. Uh, so if, if Heather, she'll, if she'll Heather is the little yeah, red-haired girl. You know? Yeah. <laughs> if, if Schultz didn't have a hand in it, um, you know, if this character was not mentioned or referenced directly in the strip, I didn't talk about the character. I may, I may you know, I may have mentioned. Um, well, actually, I'm not. I'm, I'd have to look up the entry on Snoopy's siblings. Um, oh. <laughs> so yeah, there, Snoopy. Snoopy was part of a litter of eight right. puppies, and uh, so that's that's established, including like so, several places. He mentions that there are eight of them, and then they um, send his dad uh, a Father's Day card, and they all signed it, and there are eight paw prints, <laughs> and. Um, what was was interesting about that was we don't meet all eight uh, in the strip. Mm. So we meet um, Snoopy, of course, um, his brother Spike, his other brothers Andy and Olaf, uh, his sister Belle, uh, his brother Marbles, 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they, they're introduced in one of the Peanuts animated specials, and they're given names there. I see. Um, <laughs> but because they, because they didn't show up in the strip, because we didn't get their names there, um, you know, they, they didn't, uh, they weren't in the book. Right, right. So the people, the... <laughs> I, 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 I don't think I've done a signing without uh, one of the animation fans coming up and asking, what about this yeah, yeah. <laughs> character? And how, how dare you leave out, uh, you know, and I have to point out, well, that's, yeah, yeah that's, that was that's Bill, animation. Bill so, Melendez. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. On that particular book, uh, I, I mean, I've read the entire uh, Peanuts comic strip series now since Fantagraphics put those out uh, but I wasn't doing it for research purposes so I didn't really pay attention to if there was any inconsistencies. Did you find any really glaring inconsistencies on characters over the years that just kind of made things maddening to try to figure out? <laughs> you know, it, for a, you know, for a, a strip that ran for 50 years yeah. um you know, there's surprisingly few um, glitches. Um, you know, I'm thinking. I'm thinking of um, you know the TV shows Cheers and Frasier. Yeah. Um, where they have, um, you know, when they when they created this character Frasier um, as a background character in Cheers, and then built him up into a regular, and they were they had his whole backstory on that show they had no idea that um he would be spun off into his own show with his own supporting cast and that um you know there would be these little continuity errors and contradictions that come about from having um you know from having a character with that that degree of longevity mm-hmm. um and again they weren't um you know throwaway line in um you know, 1989. You don't you don't realize that's going to have an impact on this um, TV series that you're going to be developing um, seven years later, right? Or or, or however however long. Um, sorry, <laughs> I don't I don't have the uh, I don't have the uh, IMDb open in front of me to right. check all the math and what. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, a strip like Peanuts. Um, obviously, Schultz doing a joke in 19. 19- 52, he does not, he was not thinking ahead to, you know, I better be careful because in 1978 I may want to say something different about this character. Yeah. Um, you know, I would say that the, um, you know, the biggest uh, kind of glitches that I found, um, you know, I, I don't think of them so much as errors, it's just, this is, this is just really interesting is the way the characters aged over the years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so Charlie Brown, um, you know, introduced as a kid, 1950, and he's, he's introduced at pretty much the age he would remain for the entire strip. Um, you know, they got, they got just a little bit older. Um, you know, I think he may have been, he may have been, that, that nebulous preschool right around kindergarten age when the strip started, but then kind of settled into this um, maybe second grade, maybe third grade yeah. aged kid by the end of the, um, for the majority of the strip. Uh, and there were characters that were introduced 
right. who grew up, um, you know, so Charlie Brown's clearly a few years, like, minimum four years older than these characters. So he met Schroeder as a baby. He met Linus as a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and these characters caught up to him and basically, <laughs> you know, eventually eventually became classmates. Right. <laughs> uh, with him. Oh. Um, and you could, you know, you could get hung up on that. You could get, <laughs> I, I'm obviously hung up on it to the point that I'm mentioning it. Yeah. Um, but... You know, I've always, I, and Lucy was clearly younger than Charlie Brown at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I would, I would say, you know, she carries herself if not as someone older than Charlie Brown, at least. Um, you know, maybe, maybe she's even only a week older than Charlie Brown, but uh, she certainly carries herself like a mature kid, like a big kid. Right. Um, <laughs> And her her younger brother, the existence of her younger brother ages her a little bit, uh, and the existence of a still younger brother rerun um, right. ages them. And it's you know I I, I could talk for hours about <laughs> uh, the fact that you know I think we've we've occasionally seen Linus and Charlie Brown in the same classroom, yeah, uh, which Schultz would do just for the you know this would be a good joke, this would be a good chance to have these two interact. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it feels like that made Lucy just that little bit older and that Linus, who was a baby, caught up to Charlie Brown eventually. Uh, I don't want to think about him being held back <laughs> in school or anything. Right. Um, but, you know, by, by um, I'd say by, and uh, Sally was a character who was introduced as a baby and she got to grow a little bit older mm-hmm. uh, without... Um, you know, she went from being probably four years younger than, than Charlie Brown to uh, maybe about two years younger. Uh, and there's, I'm sure, I'm sure as I say this, someone is checking the the handwritten chart that he has scrawled over his wall, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, figuring out the relative ages of, uh, and all of this of the uh, the Peanuts characters. Well, I always figured Charlie Brown himself aged about a year every ten years, roughly, during the course of the fifty years strip, because it seemed like he was about age four when it started, about nine by the end. That's just kind of. <laughs> My rough yeah, take got, on it. He's got he's got he's got he's got good genes. I would say. Yeah. <laughs> now the other ones grew faster. Yes. Um, I mean, I guess the biggest transition is probably, and this would probably cause me confusion, is Woodstock because Snoopy was around. Well, Snoopy was like a normal dog anyway, but the birds were drawn very realistic, and then eventually they became more cartoony, and then looking like Woodstock without names, and then there was Woodstock. Was there? A real continuity problem on that character, or no? Uh, again, yeah. If you talk to if you talk to Nat Gertler, <laughs> <laughs> you know he made he made, he made sure to send me a note, and he said, "Like, are you going to address?" Um, <laughs> and again, for people listening at home, he's he's um, he's one of your you know absolute. Um, <laughs> most knowledgeable Peanuts fans that you're going to find. He's written books. Um, um, you know, has has put a lot of uh, <laughs> lot of lot of thought into a lot of work on these on this um, property over the years. And um, you know, he 
I think he, when he heard that I was working on this book, I think he almost immediately sent me a note like, so which date are you using for Woodstock's first appearance? <laughs> because, um, you know, there's a, there's the official date that the, um, you know, Creative Associates and the Charles Schultz Studio uses, um, but he said there's, there's this other character that's, you know, pretty clearly at least a proto-Woodstock mm-hmm. that shows up here, and, you know, just because this particular character isn't named until this point, um, obviously he was named after the music festival. Right. Um, so, you know, he would not have been around by name before that point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's a fun, it's a it's a fun, complicated thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, well, um, I don't want to keep you too long. I know you said uh, you're busy, busy, busy. In fact, uh, we had to interrupt this, but I'm cutting that part out. <laughs> um, any final words of any uh, projects you're working on, or anything you want to plug? Anything about the Cartona Art Museum you want to plug, or just in general? Um, talk about your wife, Shannon. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can mention her by name at uh, least. Yeah, I'll, ra- yeah. I'll, I'll rattle off the website. Okay. Um, yeah, keep up on what I'm doing, uh, andrewferrago.com, uh, and that's where I list, um, you know, my personal projects, so any books, convention appearances. Um, if you want to buy signed books from me, that's, that's the place to go. Um, my wife, uh, the lovely and talented, talented Shane and Kate Garrity, mm-hmm. uh, is a wonderful cartoonist and writer and editor. Um, Shanon.com, um, S-H-A-E-N-O-N.com. Uh, but yeah, the best, best place to keep up with me is through the Cartoon Art Museum's website, cartoonart.org. And yeah, we've always got a full roster of events. I've got to actually go set up one for one right now. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, just um, yeah, everybody keep reading and writing and producing comics, and we'll we'll keep uh, putting them out there. And if somebody wanted to make a contribution or visit the Cartoon Art Museum uh, address, yeah, cartoonart.org. You can go to. Um, yeah, uh, visit us in San Francisco. We are at 781 Beach Street, uh, just a half block from Ghirardelli Square. All right, very good. All right, well, I want to thank you today for being my guest, Andrew, and uh, very good talking to you. And Same here. I wish you continued success with the museum and your books. And Shane okay, and Two. Thanks a lot. <laughs> and Shane and Two and your kid. <laughs> and your son. All right, great. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Have a good day. <laughs> You too. Mm, Bye. Thank you for listening, and thank you again for being my special guest, Andrew Farrago. Episode number 25 will be coming soon. If you'd like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Fun Ideas Productions, and if everyone listening just contributed $1 a month, that would be a tremendous help. This has been the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2019 Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you very much, and have a good night.